Romans chapter 5. That's where we are. Romans chapter 5. Page 942 in those blue church Bibles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. You're looking for it in the New Testament. Thank you, Thomas, for covering for me last week. You did an excellent job as we looked at the first Christmas celebration. Thomas said it was Christmas in its earliest and purest form. I couldn't agree, I couldn't agree more. It's a wonderful message, just good to prepare our hearts for this wonderful season. Now we come back to Romans, and we're going to be looking again at verses 1 through 11. And as I've said several times before, this particular section of Romans, verses 1 through 11, has been labeled by some teachers of God's Word as the results or blessings of justification. Okay, the results or blessings of justification. We've been talking about that doctrine of the Bible called justification. Or to say it another way, Paul lays out in this section a number of incredible and amazing benefits, okay? Incredible and amazing benefits that belong solely to the justified. They belong solely to the justified. Who are the justified? Well, biblically speaking, it is those sinners who have been declared right with God. Declared right with God. Listen, in case you forgot, not because of something they have done to earn or merit God's favor or to make themselves right with God. Not because of that, which is impossible for a sinner to do anyway. It's impossible for a sinner to make themselves right with God or to merit God's favor. But rather they are justified because they have trusted have trusted and are trusting, okay? They don't trust once and then stop trusting. They trust and continue to trust in the righteous and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect life and his substitutionary and sacrificial death on the cross on their behalf for their salvation. The justified. And I believe Paul's primary or main purpose in sharing the things he does here in this part of Romans, that is these particular blessings or benefits that belong solely to the justified, is to give all those who believe and adhere to the gospel, the good message that Paul preached, to give all of them an assurance concerning the completeness and finality of their salvation so that they might know for certain that true and ultimate salvation comes only through justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And that is Christians, that is those who adhere to the gospel of God, that's what Paul calls it in the beginning of Romans, the gospel of God, the good news of God, the good news that Paul preached, the gospel that Paul proclaimed and is recorded in this book of the Bible titled Romans, that as Christians, we have God's complete and permanent acceptance and we can rest assured, this is what Paul wants us to know, that we can rest assured that we will be rescued and fully delivered in the end from God's holy and righteous wrath against our sin, and we will be forever united with our God 
our Creator in holy bliss, rather than separated from Him eternally in a horrific place that the Bible calls hell. A place Jesus described in Matthew 25, 41 as an eternal fire. It's a chapter on the judgment. He described that place as an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now let's read the text. Verses 1 through 11. We'll read the entire section here. Beginning in verse 1, follow along. The Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since that is true, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved, be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Inside of your bulletin on the left-hand side, you will find a simple outline to follow along as we continue in this section of God's Word together. So far, uh, we have only covered the first two verses of chapter 5, but today we're going to take a closer look at verses 3 through 8. Referring now to the outline in your bulletins, you will see the following note. It says, we are continuing to consider six assertions, statements of fact concerning justification by faith so that we who have put our faith in Christ might be fully assured of our salvation. We have covered so far, we have peace with God. That was the first one. We are standing in grace, number two. Number three, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And today we will begin to look at, we have God's love in our hearts. We have God's love in our hearts, which I'll explain that statement because that could definitely be misunderstood. Since three Sundays have passed since we were last in Romans, I want to just quickly review with you the first three points we have already gone over before we start to take a look at the, the fourth one. The first one was in verse 1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. Do you remember that? We have peace with God. We talked about the fact that the, Paul's not referring to an, a sense of inner peace here. He's talking about a relationship of peace, a relationship of peace. We now have peace with God. That means prior to being justified by faith in Christ, we did not have peace with God. We were not at peace with God. Rather, the Bible refers to us as enemies of God, rebels. And I, I said to you that 
You know, someone might say, well, I don't have any beef with God. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm cool with God. That's not really the issue. The real issue is, is God cool with you? Right? Do you remember that? Is he okay with you? And he cannot be unless you have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Unless you have been redeemed, reconciled, justified, declared right by placing your faith, your hope, your trust in Christ, his death, his righteousness, his resurrection, that brings you a righteous status before God. And that gives you peace with God. I want to add something to that too. You know, people say, hey, I'm cool with God. What God? You know, I mean, don't people, they create gods of their own imagination. People I have found, here's what I found. People generally could say, yeah, I'm cool with God. He's good until I start to expose them to the God of the Bible. Then all of a sudden, they're not good with God. They don't like God so much. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because the God in their imagination is a God who's kind of like a, just a happy old man up there, a grandfather who kind of looks down, maybe a kind of a genie in a bottle. He's just there to care for people. And if you get into a hard spot, ask him for help, and he'll, he'll bail you out. That's the kind of God. But when I expose them to the God of the Bible, a God of wrath, a God that, according to the Gospel of John, it says you, as a sinner, are under that wrath, a God who hates sin. He's angry with sin. Yeah, your behavior, he hates it, your sinful behavior. He's opposed to it. A God who sent his son and says, you either believe in Jesus, you put your trust in Jesus, you follow my son, or I have nothing to do with you, right? You begin to expose him to that kind of God, and the rebel will say, oh, forget that. I don't, I'm not good with that God, but that's your God, Christian. Well, there's only one. There's only one to tell you, just one. There's not your God and her God and his God. There's just one. And he has sent his son to redeem you, rebel. And unless you submit, put your trust in Jesus Christ, you will face his wrath. But all those who have been justified, they have peace with God, beloved. We have peace with God. And knowing that certainly can give us a, give us a sense of inner well-being, right? I am good with the Creator. I am good with the sovereign, powerful, almighty God of the universe. I am good with him. I am not good. I am good with him because of Jesus Christ. You understand? That's important. Two, we are standing in grace. That was the first part of verse two. That was awesome. I love that, that particular message in particular. God, we are saved by grace, right? Remember we talked about grace? That is unmerited, undeserved kindness and favor, right? What does that mean? If it's unmerited, it means you can't merit it. You can't do anything to earn it, to get it. You're saved. I'm saved by grace. It's all of grace. Oh, that's awesome. But guess what? That same grace by which the sinner is saved is the same grace in which the sinner stands. They are planted. Remember I said God takes his divine superglue and glues us right to his grace. And so God not only saves us, but he continues to maintain our justification. He continues to keep us right before him. Why? Because I'm a good little boy and I follow every single rule? 
Well, that, forget it. I can't do that. I don't do that. Yes, I am striving to obey Christ, but I fail, beloved. Any of you? Any of you fail every once in a while? Right? I know you never do it on Sunday, but maybe on Monday you fail. Right? But I, I don't have to worry. I don't have to fret. I don't have to freak out and go, did I lose my salvation? Am I back in? Am I? No, I'm standing in grace. I'm standing in God's unmerited favor. Listen, I don't have to do something to earn his favor. Right? This is where the prosperity gospel preachers get you. Oh, put a little more into the plate and you'll get God's favor. Put a little more and you'll get more of God's favor as they suck you dry and drive their Mercedes Benz and live in their mansion. I have God's favor. I have it. If I put a dollar in the plate or $1,000 in the plate, you understand? I have it. I have it. I stand in it. Third, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This one got maybe a little more complicated. That was the last part of the verse two. We talked about the word hope, right? We said, listen, this is not hope where wishful thinking, like I hope I get that for Christmas, and then you didn't. Or maybe you did. But that's not the the idea of that meaning of that word there in the Bible. It means to look forward to with confident expectation. Confident expectation. I'm expecting this. That's what the word hope there means. What am I expecting? I'm expecting the glory of God. And I told you what I believe Paul means there is the expectation was to share in that very glory, to share in the glory of God. What's the glory of God? Well, we defined it this way, the beauty. It's the beauty that emanates from fancy word, or comes forth from God's perfect character. From all that God is. You could say the glory of God is the likeness of God. It is the splendor and majesty of God on display through His perfections. It is God, very God, is the glory of God. And Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And you know what? God has determined to conform us, little old wretched sinners saved by grace. He has determined to conform us to the image of, not Jeremy, thanks be to God, not you, to Jesus Christ. To Jesus Christ, who is the radiance of the glory of God. That's what we learn in Romans chapter 8. We'll see that when we get there. And what God has started, we are told in Philippians 1 6, He will finish. He will finish. God has given us a righteous status. And guess what? He intends on making us completely righteous, He intends on making us match that very status. He has declared us perfectly righteous, and he has destined us to be perfectly righteous. Huh? Huh? No more sin, beloved. No more sin. This work of God has already begun, and it will one day be completed when you and I are glorified. Romans 8.30, everyone he justifies, he will glorify. Now, picking up from there, the end of verse 2, Paul says something at the beginning of verse 3 that was all reviewed. That might sound quite strange and shocking at first, okay? So prepare yourselves. 
I want to tell you that the main point I want to draw out for you also this morning, the fourth point in the outline, we have God's love in our hearts, those who have been justified. That point is actually found in verse 5, but we're going to look at verses 3 and 4 first because they lead us right into that point. Okay, so 3 and 4 lead us into verse 5, where the point is that I want to draw out. And then the verses after verse 5, 6 through 8, they help us to understand better the truth of verse 5. But for sake of time, we're going to come back to that next week. So we'll complete this next week, and Lord willing, we're actually going to do the next two points and complete the section. Maybe. All right? You know how I go. So Romans 5, now look back at verse... 3. Romans 5, verse 3. Paul says this. Look at your copy of God's Word. Not only that, you should stop and say, not only what? You should ask yourself that question. Not only, you'll find the answer in verse, the verses right before it, not only do Christians rejoice in hope of the glory of God, which is what he states right at the end of verse five, 2, not only that, but guess what? We rejoice in our sufferings. Stop right there. Stop right there. Is Paul crazy? Is he crazy? I mean, why in the world? Why in the world would, would Christians rejoice in their sufferings? Just think about it for a second. Wouldn't there have to be something mentally wrong with a person for them to do that? Just, I'm just generally speaking now. It sound, wouldn't it seem like, I mean, if you knew someone who rejoiced in pain and in misery, who rejoiced in those things, just generally speaking, wouldn't you kind of wonder about them? Well, we'll get to that in a moment, but first I want to point out that the sufferings here Paul speaks of should probably be understood or best be understood as the, the sufferings or troubles or tribulations. You could also understand it that way. That's how two translations translate it. They use the word tribulations instead of sufferings. It's these sufferings or troubles or tribulations that are unique to those who follow Jesus Christ, to Christians, as opposed to the sufferings that are experienced by all of mankind generally, like illness or tragic events. Do you understand the distinction? So we could, we could just talk about suffering in general. The world suffers, okay? The world experiences suffering to one degree or another. The world has illness. The world experiences death, crime, tragic events, hurricanes, earthquakes. The world experiences those things. I don't think that that's what Paul is talking about here. I think he's talking about the sufferings or tribulations that are specifically associated with the Christian. And I'll get to that in a second. And I would add that these sufferings or tribulations Paul mentions here can actually be expected to occur by, for the Christian. You can expect these to happen. You can expect it to one degree or another. So what do I mean by that? Well, listen, let me remind you of a couple of passages. Jesus told his disciples or followers in John 15, beginning in verse 19. Maybe you'll remember this. He said, listen, if you were of the world... If you belong to the world, if you were part of the world's system, if you were still rebelling against me, the world would love you as their own. They would love you. They would embrace you. Don't you know that to be true? 
The second you go to Christ, this, people who came to Christ later in life really understand what I'm talking about. Those of you who have grown up Christian, it may be a little more difficult for you to understand what I'm getting at, but you, you are walking with the world, living in the world, and then you come to Christ and you begin a new path. What happens? Your friends are still living in the world. What kind of reaction do they give to you? One of, oh, that's wonderful. We're so glad you're a Jesus freak with all your righteous talk. We love it. Come on in and join our party. Come on down. Right? No, you stop getting invited to the parties. They don't, unless, that is, if you're living for Jesus. You stop getting invited. They don't, they don't want anything to do with you anymore. In fact, they don't want to hear about Jesus Christ. Right? Because every time they hear about it, they're reminded that they're living in rebellion and it hurts them, their conscience, they're convicted. They go, oh, we don't want that person around. Right? They're a buzzkill. They're a party pooper. Okay? So Jesus says, listen, they would love you if you were of the world. They would because they would love you as your own, but because you're not of the world, but rather I have chosen you out of the world to be my followers, guess what? The world will hate you. That's what Jesus says. He doesn't say not like you as much. He says hate. And that they too, the followers of Jesus Christ, would be persecuted. Persecuted. That's what Jesus says. That's what he told his followers. And beloved, history has and continues to confirm the very truth of Jesus' words. We have 2,000 years of Christian persecution. And see, that's, I know when I say that, it kind of sometimes in America's churches, it kind of like, woo, kind of goes way, I don't know what you're talking about, Jeremy. I don't really understand what you mean. We kind of live in a bubble here in the United States of America. We do. So far, I think it's changing, but so far, we can still gather together and freely worship. And yeah, we get some heat here and there, family members, neighbors, that. But listen, not once since, I op- since we opened this church have I feared that men would walk through with guns and arrest us and put us in prison. But do you realize that is a reality for many in this world? Do you know that? Christians right now are suffering, in prison, scared, living under. In the underworld, you can say, the underworld church, hiding out, because they are not free to worship. And it's just not a matter of being free to worship. They will be arrested, beaten, maybe killed. All right? United States, we're a very small piece of the human population. We really are. And for whatever reason, God is... Shed his grace on thee that we have this freedom, although we've taken it for granted, sadly. But that's another message all entirely. But listen, this is still happening. Christians are persecuted. And I'm not trying to scare you and say, oh, get ready for it. It's happening in the next five years. But I can assure you, it is coming. This freedom will not last forever. Along the same lines, Jesus warned his disciples in John 16, 33. He said this, listen. In this world, he's talking to his disciples. Who are his disciples? His followers. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? You are if you're a Christian. And this is what he says to you and to them. They will have tribulation. That's what he said. They would have tribulation. 
And the, the Greek word there is the same exact Greek word that Paul uses here in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, when he talks about rejoicing in our sufferings. Same word. They would have tribulation. Then listen, these are just a few places in the Scripture where I'm going to. We learn in Acts 14 that shortly after a mob, a mob, a group of people tried to murder the Apostle Paul for what? What did they, they want to murder this man for? For preaching the gospel. That's it. He wasn't stealing or robbing or, or doing anything crazy. He was simply preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we learn that shortly after that, shortly after this mob tried to kill him, okay, he escapes. He goes to another city that he went to. He goes to another city and he encourages others there who had previously become followers of Christ because they heard the gospel and responded in faith. He encourages them to continue in their faith. And you know what he says to them? He says this, quote, through many tribulations, through many, no, thank you, not a few, many tribulations, or you could, you could also translate it hardships, through many tribulations or hardships, we must enter the kingdom of God. Verse 22 of Acts 14, you can look it up. Also to the Christians in Philippi, Paul wrote in Philippians 1.29, I love this one, that it has been granted to them, to the Christians, for the sake of Christ, that not only that they would believe in him, not only that, this has been given to you, this belief, not only that, but what else? That you would suffer for his sake. Look it up, guys. Philippians 1.29. And that's why I get so hostile towards prosperity gospel nonsense. The Word of God runs contrary to the prosperity gospel, this best life now garbage, this health and wealth gospel. This is, what, this is your destiny in life, to be healthy and wealthy and, and rich and all these things. In this life, that's what God wants. Then it does not... It does not, let me say it this way, it conflicts with what the Word of God says. Over and over, Jesus himself and his apostles are saying the same thing. In this life, in this messed up world, you as a Christian are going to have tribulations, you're going to have persecutions, you are going to suffer on account of Christ. Now, by the way, our best life is to come, right? That's the hope. It's not now. It's to come. That's what we're living for. That's what allows us to strip ourselves of all these things that want to attach themselves to us, right? We get carried away and get lost in this world. We forget this world is not our home. This world offers us persecution and suffering and tribulation, so we live for Christ with our eye on the prize for the world to come, for the kingdom of God where Christ rules and reigns, where we will be healthy and, yes, wealthy, prosperous, yes, in the kingdom to come, beloved, in the kingdom to come. Totally lost my place, totally. Now, when you suffer for the sake of, of Jesus Christ, right? When that happens, because to some degree that still happens to us, even in America, okay? When you have troubles or tribulations or are mistreated. Matthew, that'll happen, I promise you. I know many of Christian men who have gone into the military, okay? 
And they are going to, unfortunately, many of them are going to beat you up about your faith. You're, you're going to suffer for your faith, my friend. Okay, that's why we're praying for you. Stand firm, okay? When you have troubles or tribulations or are mistreated, mocked or insulted or ridiculed or wrongly spoken evil of, or as still happens, as I said, in many places in our world, physically threatened and even harmed, simply, simply because you're living for Christ and proclaiming the good news of the gospel. You're just telling people about Jesus and people want to hurt you. Or all of a sudden they don't like you, right? When that happens, then you are naturally going to feel real emotional and or physical pain. Right? You're going to feel it. Okay? You're not numb. And you will undoubtedly have some sorrow. And that, beloved, is quite normal. It's normal. And yet Paul says as Christians, he says we rejoice in our sufferings. So how is that possible? Let's look back at the text. Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Read it again. Not only that, not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but just in case you were wondering, hey, we rejoice in our sufferings. You know, Paul was suffering. The Christians were suffering in the first century, okay? So this was real to them. Paul says we rejoice in those things. And what's that next word? Sufferings, what's the next word? Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Just so you know, we're not going to make it to the fourth point. I just looked at the clock. It's just not going to happen. So we're going to cover three and four and we'll come back to point four. That's probably better. God has providentially decided to do it this way. Or I just talk too much, but either way. Listen, but these are good. I want you to capture this, 3 and 4, because they lead us into verse, verse 5. Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings because of what we know. Because of what we know. That's the only way we can do it, guys. Naturally, sufferings, persecution, tribulation would wipe us out unless we knew something. And what knowledge is it that makes it possible for Christians to rejoice in their sufferings? Well, it is the knowledge that rather than sufferings or tribulations possibly threatening or weakening the Christian's hope, they instead can lead to, believe it or not, an increase in the Christian's hope if they know what sufferings can produce, which is ultimately more hope. It's more hope. And what is this hope that Paul is referring to? Well, in the context, I understand it to be the same hope that Paul talks about at the end of verse 2. I don't, I don't think he's talking about something different. He's talking about the same thing. It's the same hope. It's the hope of the glory of God. It is the hope or confident expectation of our ultimate and final salvation. The hope, beloved, that we will share in the very glory of God. That we will indeed be made perfect and righteous. Made glorious. Made like Jesus Christ. In order that we might be able to dwell with a holy and perfect God forever. And that the good work that God has started in us, He will complete. It is guaranteed. And we are guaranteed, therefore, to experience the fullness and finality of our salvation. God, beloved, is not going to let us go or reject us or abandon us along the way. Rather, He will see to it to bring us through this life into the very next. 
to live with him. And nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from this glorious destiny, not even sufferings or tribulations that we might experience for Christ's sake. So, how does this process Paul referred to here in verses 3 and 4 work exactly? How does this work, this chain reaction you see here that starts with suffering, okay, starts with suffering, and somehow ends in hope instead of despair or hopelessness? Well, I believe it, I believe, listen, it generally works something like this. When the Christian, as a result of following Jesus Christ, experiences sufferings or tribulations, okay, for the sake of Christ, standing up for Christ, living for Christ, proclaiming the message, when that happens and they turn to God for help, because that's what a Christian should do and that's what they would do, they turn to him for help, for strength in those difficult times. You know what happens? The God, whose beloved and justified children they are, by faith in Christ, he responds to them graciously, lovingly, and they are made by him by the Holy Spirit that dwells within them. They are made and empowered to patiently endure, to live under the tribulation or suffering, so that they persevere. They persevere in these persecutions, in these hardships. And so suffering brings about, for the Christian, endurance. Or perseverance. It brings it about because of whose they are. As one writer says, we can never learn endurance without suffering. I mean, it's simple, right? We can't, if you have nothing to endure, then you don't ever know what endurance is. Because without suffering, there would be nothing to endure, he goes on to say. Do you understand? So suffering comes into our life, and that gives us the opportunity to bear up under it. Suffering, I believe, specifically for Christ's sake. And then Paul says that this endurance that we experience through bearing up under these trials, through the strength of God and Christ and the Spirit that lives in us, this produces, the the text says, produces or brings about what's the next thing in the chain? Character, right? Character, yes. Now, the Greek word translated character, if you have an English Standard Version Bible, even many other Bibles, that Greek word is translated proven character, proven character in the New American Standard Bible, and I, I am convinced that that is a more accurate translation. Because, listen, I'll tell you why. Because the basic meaning behind the Greek word in the text is the idea of someone or something that has been tested and has passed the test. Someone or something that has been tested or has passed the test. I mean, the the Greek word could also just be translated proof. Proof. It's been proven. Proven out. Let me give you an example. Tested and passed the test. Do you guys know what load testing is? Load testing. Any engineers in here? Two in the back. They just didn't want to say anything. They raised their hand. Anyway, load testing. Okay. So, you know, the engineer, they put everything together and they build. I'll give you an example. I was watching this thing on these cruise ships, on these cruise ships, and they build these incredible, beautiful rooms in the middle of these cruise ships, in the center of the cruise ships, with these stairs kind of coming down, wide stairs. Now, I don't, if you've ever been on a cruise ship, you know that basically you're there to eat. Okay? You eat a lot, a lot. 
So you come on to the cruise ship weighing one amount, and you go off weighing another. So they want to make sure these stairs will hold up under the weight of their passengers, okay? So what they do, they do load testing. And they, I watched them, they brought in 70,000 pounds of concrete. They just kept stacking it on these stairs, right? I mean, you'll never, there'll never be 70,000 pounds, I don't think so, on these stairs. But they, they test it to make sure that even under the most difficult circumstances, it will hold the load, all right? Load testing. That's what this is about. This is load testing. So in the context, the Christian that has been tested by suffering and tribulations, right? Because when, when they're done and they put it up, they go, wow, look at that. That's awesome. That thing is awesome, right? The Christian who has been tested by suffering and tribulations and has come through that, who has as a beloved child of God endured by the grace and strength of God, not our own strength, please, by the strength of God, by His grace, by His unmerited favor, we are able to endure. Okay? Consequently, they have their character proven, tested, and found passing. Or you could say that, you could say it this way, their faith is proven to be genuine rather than superficial, and this results for the Christian in greater hope, in greater hope, a more intense hope. Another way you could think of, about this is the Christian whose character has been tested and proven by enduring tribulations as a result of following Christ is made certain that they are not like the person described by Jesus in Matthew 13, where he speaks of someone who hears the word of the message of salvation and responds immediately to it, okay, with joy even. They respond quickly to it. And then he says this in Matthew 13, 21. These are Jesus' words. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while... And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, on account of the gospel, on account of Christ, all of a sudden they start getting persecuted. What does the text say? Immediately he falls away. Just as quick as they came in, they're out. They're out. Now listen, the person Jesus describes here in Matthew is like the one, and there's many of them, who make a superficial or a half-hearted or strictly emotional decision for Jesus. I see this, many pastors see this all the time. There's these huge, what do you call them, Stephanie? You know, when they, crusades, okay? I'm, I'm not against them, I'm for them, okay? I'm just saying, they'll do this huge campaign, right? Fill a stadium. And there's a lot of good music and a lot of good preaching. And sometimes people are there, just because they got dragged along by a friend. And, and then they're like, yeah, you know, the invitation is made to come to Christ. And they're like, dude, do you want to do it? And look all the other people going up. He's like, I don't know, I don't know. Dude, you want to do it? Let's do it. And they go, and they're like, okay, all right, okay, yay. But it was superficial at best, at best, more of an emotional thing. They, they may not even have been listening to the message of salvation. They don't even understand what saving faith and repentance is. They just go with the flow. They go, yeah, I'm in. Give me Jesus, right? They all raise their hand. You know how I know that? Because when they follow up on those thousands that come, they can't find them. 
They don't return their calls. They don't want anything to do with it anymore. That's the reality, guys. There are few who find the way, and many lead down or go down the path of destruction. That's the truth. So, because they didn't really make a a true faith commitment to God, they're not born again, right? They're not born again. They They don't have the Spirit of God living inside of them. Therefore, when the road gets bumpy, when tribulation or persecution or suffering arises on account of their supposed association with Jesus Christ, rather than enduring by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God that indwells the believer, they immediately jump ship. They jump ship. They're out of here. Listen, I signed up for the Jesus that gives me health and wealth. I didn't sign up for this persecution, suffering, tribulation Jesus. I'm out of here. You signed up for the wrong Jesus, Bubba. I don't know why I say some of the things I do. It just happens, okay? It just happens. They immediately jump in. Why? They had never exercised genuine saving faith. They're not truly saved. Not justified by faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ. Because those who are, listen, this is the truth of the scriptures. Those who have been justified. Do you remember in Romans 8, remember what I said? Those who are justified will be glorified. In other words, it's a guarantee. If I start with you, if I make you right, if I declare you right, I'm going to make you right. I'm going to bring you through, baby. I don't care how difficult times get. I'm going to show you my power in your life through the Spirit of God that dwells inside of you. I'll bring you through. You will persevere. You will not abandon me. I am holding on to you. You see what I'm saying? You get all that. You see that. How do you know that until you endure some suffering for the sake of Christ and you don't run like a little mouse? How do you know? But when that happens, and you're standing there going, I don't know how to do it. No, no, I'm, I'm scared. I'm this, I'm that. This hurts. God help me. And he does. And he empowers you. And that has been the case throughout history. All these faithful martyrs standing up to lions. Lions, you understand? They'd throw them in the Colosseum and unleash the animals, and they'd say, Denounce Christ! And they'd stand there with their family. Can you imagine such things with their children and their wife and watch them be devoured and still say, I serve the Lord. I will not deny him. How do you think people do stuff like that? It's not in their own power, beloved. They see that endurance come through them. They go, wow! And they know my faith is genuine. I know God. He knows me. I am his and he is mine. And he is not going to let go of me. He is going to bring me through to the very end. See? So Paul says to all of his doubting folks out there that go, oh, look at those Christians. Look at them being persecuted and suffering. There must be something wrong with them. Yeah, they rejoice in the kingdom to come. But look at them suffering. Paul says, yeah, we rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You got that right. You know what else we rejoice in? We rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know God's doing something with it. He brings us through it. It creates endurance. It proves our characters. The load has been tested. We are God's and he's not letting go of us. 
And so our hope and the end is increased even more. Is that not amazing? I should have done a separate sermon on that. It should have been another point, but it's not really, it's really kind of like a side thought. Paul's just talking about rejoices. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. And he's going to lead us right into, and I'm done. So listen, I got to be done. I want to go. I do. Because man, the good part's right here. So he says in Romans 5, 5, we'll come back to that, right? We'll come back to it. You got to remember what I said, though, because I won't have time to rehearse it all next week. So you got to remember, think about it. Don't let it leave your mind the second that I stop talking, okay? Think about what I said today. Think about this. Man, I don't even have to be, nothing will separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even sufferings or tripping, nothing. God works through all of that even. I have nothing to fear. Will it be painful? It could be. Will it be emotionally crazy? Yes. But I can rejoice knowing he's going to bring me through that stuff. And in bringing me through that stuff, my character is proven. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. You understand what I'm saying? I have nothing to fear. Now, don't go looking for suffering, okay? Because it'll find you. It'll find you. If you're standing up for Christ, if you're living for Christ, don't worry, it'll find you. Don't go looking for it. But anyway, I got to finish. Romans 5, 5, and then he says, and hope does not put us to shame, and I'm going to stop right there. So we go from suffering to hope, and Paul says, and hope does not put us to shame. And then he's going to say, because, we'll talk about that. Hope does not put us to shame. We'll talk about that. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts of the Holy Spirit, right? Wow, that's the verse, that's the point I wanted to get to. So this was all introduction, thank you. So come back next week. Come back next week, because the kids are in here and, and I'm, I'm over. So let me, would you join me in praying? Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, your word is so rich, so sweet. It is a treasure chest. I thank you for all that you have brought here today. And for those that couldn't make it, Father, I pray they might be able to listen to your word, to the message uh, through the internet or some other means, and I, and I pray that they'll be able to be with us next Sunday as we come back to this section in Romans. Wow, Father, the book of Romans has, has just been a blessing to me, and I, I trust it has been to those that are here as well. And Father, I pray now that just even some of the stuff, we didn't even get to the point, but Father, maybe, maybe we needed to spend more time in that suffering aspect. So I just pray that you would your spirit that lives inside of us would convict us of these truths, would help us to understand them, believe them, embrace them. Oh, Father, I can't wait to next week to get to the love, your love that is poured out within our heart. I wanted to talk about that so bad today. But next week, next week, Father, I pray everyone will come, their hearts ready, prepared. They'll be reading Romans. They'll be reading through the passage and, and getting ready and excited that for them, Sunday would start Saturday night. They begin thinking about these things and, and come prepared to hear your word and be blessed by it. Father, I, I'm so grateful to be here and be with your people. I thank you for your grace in all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.